Okay, quiz time art. How many pieces of mail does the U.S. Postal Service handle on an average day? Um, 10 million. More. 50 million? More. 200 million? Almost. Try half a billion. But the bigger question is, how do they do it? Uh, let me guess. Uh, artificial intelligence. Of course. The USPS uses a handwriting recognition system that's about 98% accurate in reading just about any address on any piece of mail. The 2% that it can't decipher goes to a giant facility in Utah that processes mail 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in 33 different shifts. But what about this AI? How does it distinguish your ones from my sevens or... Well, really anything at all about your handwriting. I've suffered many times from that illegible mess. How the hell can an AI get something like that right? Well, it turns out we don't exactly know. We just know that it works. And as with many AIs, they're made to work by training a very basic algorithm with sets of data. Later, the ability of the AI to make predictions, say distinguish your sevens from my ones, is compared to an actual data set. Ah, now this sounds familiar. The male example comes from Carl Bergstrom's and Jevin West's book, Calling Bullshit, right? I'm sure Carl will have a lot more to say about that when we talk to him about the book in a couple of weeks. No doubt, but I'm using the example here to set up today's chat with Carl Friston, perhaps the most influential neuroscientist working today. Carl is a professor at the University College London, a fellow of the Royal Society, Royal Society of Biology, and the Academy of Medical Sciences. Carl's interested in the brain's version of inference, not just how it distinguishes ones from sevens, but how it learns about and acts on the world in general. His interest in the topic stems from early training in physics and also extensive work using neuroimaging to diagnose mental diseases. But today we're not going to talk about neuroimaging. We are going to talk about the free energy principle, his grand hypothesis for how the brain functions. In a nutshell, what Carl proposes is that, like many other complex systems, the brain has a boundary that separates its internal state from external states, what he calls a Markov blanket. All Markov blankets are made up of several states, internal and external but also sensory and active states. These states all come together to make a system in which sensory states tell the inside about the outside and the active states change the outside based on the inside. But for systems like these to persist, the internal states must model the external world. Without a model, entropy would simply take over. This kind of model updating will sound familiar to people that know the term Bayesian. Bayesian models are made up of two things, a set of priors, and probability distributions about some condition of the world. Broadly speaking, Bayesian models work by evaluating new evidence against existing expectations, what we call priors, and then adjusting the priors so that the model fits new data better. The brain's internal state or model is a complex mixture of these priors derived from genes, experiences, and any other process that affects the functions of neurons and the connections among them. Carl Collis's concept free energy because he argues that trying to minimize free energy is an elegant and tractable way for any complex system to update its priors. First off, free energy isn't really about energy in the form of work or heat, per se. His free energy is about information and entropy and comes from a major insight of Richard Feynman in quantum mechanics. In essence, the minimization of free energy is just a minimization of surprise. And surprise here just means how different reality is from expectations. Our brains seem to work as statistical or Bayesian machines, which minimize surprise and update their priors by minimizing free energy. So to put this all together, the free energy that Carl's theory proposes is a bound on the surprise that systems can experience. The surprise bound is really important because if a system could adjust its priors in any possible way, it would never get anything done. 
There would simply be too many options. For example, elk in Yellowstone have to worry about predation from resident wolf packs. Over time, they develop mental maps about which areas are more and less risky. Those maps represent priors updated over time to match the elk perception of risk with the actual probability of running into wolves. But occasionally, of course, herds run into wolves in unexpected places, meaning that they're surprised. But there's an upper bound on that surprise in the sense that wolves never fall from the sky or pop out of marmot burrows. So he was dealing with a problem of trying to characterize the behavior of small particles in quantum electrodynamics, um, uh, trying to understand the probability distributions or the beliefs about different paths that um, particles could take, realize that to describe it properly, um, he had to term what was an impossible integration problem, marginalization problem, into an optimization problem that he could then solve using standard techniques. That's a key move. Disclaimer out of the gate. This stuff might at first seem more complex than you want to hear on your morning commute or out walking your dog, but stick with us and think about it this way. And thank you to Sean Carroll of the Mindscape podcast for the nice example. When you want to move your arm, your brain has a model of where in space it wants your arm to be. Your brain then moves your arm by comparing where in space your arm is relative to the model your brain has about where it should be. The free energy principle isn't just for the brain. It has implications for a vast array of biological systems, from stress responses to evolution to the origins of multicellularity, and even what makes life so unique. One topic we discuss is agency, something we've talked about extensively in the past with guests such as Paul Davies, Dennis Walsh, and Mike Levin. Carl argues that the free energy principle gives added credence to the claim that agency exists all the way down. As you'll hear, we had a great time talking to Carl about his academic path from psychiatrist to professor, about his free energy principle, and even some stuff Art and I have been working on about stress. Of course, we also got into the ecological and evolutionary ramifications of the free energy principle, including how DNA fits into the theory. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Thank you so much for joining us today on Big Biology. It's really an honor to have you. Um, Art and I discovered the free energy principle a few years ago when we were writing a paper with a former postdoc in my group, Cedric Zimmer. Um, it's on information theory and stress. And we've become enamored um, by the idea. And we hope later in the show to be able to get to some of those uh, topics. But I think we probably must start with what the free energy principle is. Um, it probably is the case that getting the broadest audience to follow the ideas, it might be useful to frame that in the context of a biopic. So tell us about your background, your career path, and especially if there are any events, any specific events that led to this this idea. So the career path is um, eclectic. I, as an adolescent, wanted to do the physics of, of the brain. Um, I guess in those days it would have been called a mathematical psychology. Nowadays it would be computational neuroscience. So as a teenager, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and with a few hiccups along the way, try to design my career to cover both physics and maths on the one side um, and psychology and um, ultimately psychiatry on, on, on the other on the other hand so uh, 
with a, a few accidents in terms of career advice and misunderstanding the distinctions between psychology and psychiatry in the UK, <laughs> I ended up <laughs> spending, I was about to say wasting, but I think about a decade training as a clinician um, and becoming a, a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. But in so doing, trying to keep alive through um, graduate studies at Cambridge in, uh, in, in physics and quantum physics and probability theory, and then um, uh, writing and reading, uh, trying to keep the sort of the mathematical side alive. And then the first opportunity got into a field that afforded the opportunity to put those two things together, which by pure luck happened to be neuroimaging, sort of brain mapping. Um, the opportunity for the first time, in fact, um, in the sort of late 20th century to look inside the working brain and see the fluctuations activity and make inferences about its functional architecture. So that was that was defined my early um, non-clinical academic research career, but always trying to edge towards that ultimate goal, which was to derive a physics of sentience, essentially. And that's where I where I've ended up. Uh, approaching retirement <laughs> on the horizon. Yeah. So that that um, taste for uh, mathematical psychology, you called it, as a teenager, was that inspired by something that you read? Or, I mean, where, where did this idea come from? I don't know too many teenagers. I have three, in fact, and I can't imagine that <laughs> this is something that they've thought much about. I suspect they have, but they probably wouldn't articulate it in terms of mathematical <laughs> psychology. Fair. I mean, you know, as children, we're all curious creatures. And of course, the most interesting thing is me. Um, so just asking questions about how do I work, I think is quite a natural. And I'm sure your teenage children um, are, are quite obsessed with themselves and how they work. Um, uh, m m my agenda, I, I imagine, um, and in fact, I know because I was there, I think inherits largely from my parents, uh, as with all of us. So my mother was um, a nurse, uh, but fascinated and preoccupied by becoming the perfect mother and read every sort of neo-psychology self-help book and all and academic texts she could mm. to understand uh, you know, uh, psychology as it was emerging at that time. You know, um, how do you influence people or Edward de Bernier's lateral thinking and the like. On the other side, my father was a... Um, an engineer and also intrigued by first principles and maths and um, his favorite book which he made me read when I was about 12 or 13 was Sir Ralph Eddington's Space Time and Gravitation which was inspirational you know that the notion that you could reduce explanations for the way the universe works to you know, a, a, a simple uh, an elemental number of ideas and articulate it so, so so beautifully. So putting uh, you know my mother's preoccupation with um, people and brains and psychology together with my father's um, commitment to understanding things formally and mathematically and building things uh, in this instance uh, bridges he he worked on motorway bridges that, that that provided the sort of you know the perfect storm to be preoccupied with me in the right kind of way. Yeah. You, you also said um, that, well, in the, in the field of neuroimaging, your contributions have been, I mean, just absolutely amazing. But I think you said something about luck having something to do with your movement into that field. So can you say a little bit about that uh, event? 
Yeah, uh, by luck, I just mean the, you know, the luck and the accident of timing. Um, so it was, it was, I mean, every 10 years or so, something new comes along that opens up a new set of questions and begs a new set of answers um, that make a difference, usually of the kind that um, enable other people. So um, for me, that was neuroimaging, that was brain mapping. It was a new field, all sorts of low hanging fruit, all sorts of really intriguing, pragmatic um, questions that required um, a formal understanding of how you make sense of data, um, accompanied of course by the sort of, you know, um, great advances in computer science and the advent of email and all sorts of interesting <laughs> things in terms of the, you know. So it was just great timing for a young man or a young person to, enter into a domain that had um, lots of really profound and really interesting questions where he or she could use a mathematical skill set to, you know, to try and resolve those questions. You know, one, depending upon your field, um, you know, the next wave would be optogenetics, for example. I'm sure there were other developments in sort of um, um, small particle physics and the like. But for mm. me, it was, it was, it was brain mapping. Let's um let's dig into the free energy principle at, at this point. This is an idea that's this loomed large in your your thinking and your writing, and um, I guess I want to sort of unpack what it means to say that the energy is free and the context of of information and thermodynamics that you you use this in, um, and and I want to link that to your ideas about minimizing prediction errors and and surprise and there's sort of a lot in there, but. Um, you also wrote in, in the, your 2010 paper in Nature Review Neurobiology that despite the wealth of empirical data in neuroscience, there are relatively few global theories for how the brain works. So, so it sounds like you think that the free energy principle is, is a unifying theory. So maybe say, what, what is the problem more formally that we're trying to solve and what does free energy bring to that, that problem? Right. So in reverse order, Yes, the free energy is a denouement of this ambition to try and boil down um, explanations for the way things work, and in particular the way um, things like us work, to the, to the most simple elemental um, principles. It is not trying to replace anything. So um, I spent um, some years working with um, a number of people, good and great thinkers, who did, I think, have, have spot on ideas um, from different perspectives about particularly how the brain worked. So I had worked and knew, knew and admired these people and they were all right in their own, in their own setting. Um, my agenda was to try and find um, a mathematical formalism, a physics that would reveal why they were right uh, to accommodate everything. So I repeat, the free energy principle is not meant to be another way of understanding things. It's just meant to be a framework within which you can understand other global brain theories. So it's meant to be as inclusive as possible, but also as simple as possible. And mm -hmm. sort of, there are principled reasons why it has to be uh, as simple uh, as possible. So that, that was, you know, the free energy principle is a denouement of those teenage aspirations to try and find simple explanations for how things work but was massively informed by the, 
um, academic uh, experience, interactions with mentors and, and reading that course inherits enormously from the trajectory of um, similar ambitions right from the days of Plato. So the, you ask, you know, why free energy and what is the freeness um, aspect of it? If you Wikipedia that, you get this, I think, rather sort of trite um, explanation of freedom, which is the, you know, the, the energy that is available to do work. Uh, I say trite, and that's perhaps a little bit disingenuous. Um, certainly from a thermodynamic perspective, that's an okay way of looking at it. But if you just take away all the semantics that, it, that come from thermodynamics and just look at the underlying maths, which is intrinsically just about probability distributions, mm -hmm. And I will refer to probability distributions as as beliefs, sort of mathematical statement of a, of a of a probabilistic belief. Uh, if you just look at it and uh, ask how different functions of beliefs or probability distributions play a key role in explaining dynamics of everything, then you end up appealing to the work of Richard Feynman uh, and well, it's specifically in relation to variational free energy. So he was dealing with a problem of trying to characterize the behavior of small particles in quantum electrodynamics, um, uh, trying to understand the probability distributions or the beliefs about different paths that um, particles could take, realize that to describe it properly, um, he had to turn what was an impossible integration problem, marginalization problem, into an optimization problem that he could then solve using standard techniques. That's a key move. What that does is it creates, it takes a system that can be described probabilistically, in this instance, quantum mechanics, and converts it into an object that can be understood in terms of optimization. And that means you've now got a normative teleological gloss on describing how this system works, because it looks as if something is being minimized or max maximized. So what is that thing? Well, the thing is the variational free energy. So uh, it is exactly the same um, construct um, that is used in machine learning and high-end deep learning, like variational autoencoders, where um, the negative physics Feynman variational free energy is known as an evidence lower bound or elbow. So in that name, in that acronym, um, you have the key thing, which is evidence. So what we are talking about now is um, a generic mathematical way of describing the probabilistic dynamics or evolution of any system in a normative sense, in a teleological sense, as trying to um, optimize a bound on evidence. So what is evidence? It's just the probability of some outcomes given some model or hypothesis or construct explanation that you um, consider generated those outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the free energy principle is just um, a statement of um, the way in which systems uh, behave probabilistically that can be read as a, a teleological statement in the sense it looks as if they're trying to optimize something what are they trying to optimize they're trying to optimize the evidence for their models um, what does that mean it just means that they're trying to um, optimize their model 
such that it renders everything that they are exposed to as likely as possible. And then from that, you can spin off things like predictive coding, you know, how, what would be a good proxy for the probability of some outcomes? Well, heuristically, you can think about it as surprise or an outcome which you find very implausible under your understanding of um, how those outcomes were generated would have a very low probability uh, and therefore would be surprising. So, so let me let me just interject and maybe for our listeners and, and for myself as well, you, you talking about probability distributions and beliefs. And just to be clear, so these probability distributions are sort of perceptions or anticipations in our, our brains, our nervous systems about what may happen in the future under a, a given set of circumstances, right? So, so the distributions you're talking about are our anticipated likelihood of future events. Is that, is that right? It is right um, when one talks about um, surprise in relation to future outcomes. In fact, technically, um, and this may or may not be an interesting point um, you, you want to pursue, but technically the surprise we're talking about is not about the future. It's just about the outcome in the moment at this mm -hmm. point in time. The, so the surprise is a characteristic of available observable outcomes sensations mm -hmm. for example um, so i find these sensations rather surprising they are highly unlikely um, given my understanding of how um, those sensations were caused what you're talking about is more like anticipation and i think that's a key distinction because um sort of i suspect jumping ahead to things that you might want to talk about <laughs> later if i want to evaluate the surprise of something in the future, I'm also going to have to understand how I am going to sample those outcomes and those sensations. Put more simply, it means that I have to anticipate and have in mind some action upon the world, some active sampling, some, um, and indeed, you know, the, the, the active aspect um, motivates active inference, which is a sort of like the generalization of minimizing surprise to the future, to the consequences of action. So implicitly you're, invo you're invoking agency when you're talking about sort of things in the future and anticipation. Uh, more simply, you're talking about systems that can plan and work out, well, if I sampled or looked over there, um, would I resolve surprise? Um, or if I moved over here, would I have some different sensations um, that I anticipate may or may be less surprising than the current uh, sensations that I'm talking about. So, yeah, you know, it's a really important point. Um, so if I just back up a bit, of course, the surprise I'm talking about is a mathematical thing. It's just mm -hmm. uh, a way of labeling the impl implausibility of some observable, some sensation, some measurement mm -hmm. yeah, of data. I see. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, it doesn't entail um, any propositional aspect. I could, you know, it's not, it's not something that we could talk about in conversation. So it's not a folk psychology surprise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, an electron um, or a virus can, can have a set of um, states or variables impinge upon it that can be uh, that will have a surprise if I can find out what that um, what that electron or virus 
thought was or uh, <laughs> normally experienced. This is this is super interesting in, in relation to this idea of, of agency. And I just just wanted to follow up and say we've we've talked to a number of other guests on the podcast that have been. Um, I've thought a lot about agency and have convinced us that it's very important. This includes uh, Dennis Walsh and Scott Turner and, and Mike Levin and some others. Um, and uh, Mike, Mike Levin especially has this interesting idea about agency and sort of agency at different levels of biological organization. And and he and Dan Dennett think that, you know, agency goes all the way down in terms of, of levels of hierarchy and that even, you know, very simple systems like the, like the ones you were just describing have a, a kind of agency in which they're, you know, evaluating their world, not with a brain, but with some system that's aware of its externalities and is, in a sense, making decisions about, about what to do. Um, it's a really interesting resonance between that idea and what you just said. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. in particular, uh, Mike Levin's work is, is a beautiful example of the kinds of processes that the free energy principle is, is, is meant to account for. Whether it can mm-hmm. or not at this stage is an open question. And, and you know, we certainly work together a little bit on that. But th- th- I think those are two fundamental points that sort of all the way up and all the way down um, on the one hand and agency on the other hand, I, I, I think two absolutely fundamental points that, you know, you know, all the way up and all the way down has to be the case that, you know, in the sense that if, if we are, let's take the, the, the perspective of um, a physicist who's trying to understand the emergence of systems that um, attain some kind of non-equilibrium steady state. So they persevere, they um, they self-assemble in, com- in computational chemistry. They are autopoetic in the in the in the life sciences, and in virtue of that, they have some steady state. But they are exposed. They're not closed systems, so that, you know they they are they are not in thermodynamic equilibrium. So they're non-equilibrium. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they must be exposed to influences from the outside, from the, you know something at, you know, at a higher scale, for example. But in order to attain steady state at the level of the system in question, at some level over some time um, course, the states that contextualize the outside states must also be at steady state. So you've got this sort of renormalizability of this persistence and endurance. So to put that simply, that you know, any given organelle um, in my body can only exist in virtue of the fact that the organ exists. And the organ only exists in virtue of the fact that I exist. And I only exist in virtue of the fact that my family exists. And my family exists only in virtue of the fact that my city exists, that my country exists, and the earth, you know, and so on and so forth. So you, 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 know, you can't have existence um, in the absence of the same principles applying at multiple different scales. So, um, uh, Mike Levin has, has, has done some um, Beautiful work on that in, in, you know, in relation to how on earth do you get multicellular organisms? Uh, I'm sure you've spoken to him about, about that, but it's an intriguing question. You know? So if I want a multicellular organism, then I have to have some cells on the outside, and yet those cells can't reproduce. So they seem to, it seems to defy a natural imperative um, for, um, for natural selection that you know, this ensemble is now sacrificing, sorry, the ensemble, the members of the ensemble are sacrificing their uh, potential to reproduce in the service of the ensemble in order to attain 
a non-equilibrium steady state as a multicellular uh, constitution. So that's, I think, you know, one of the most lovely examples from, from Mike Levin's work, that you, you have to think about all, all the levels and all the scales um, at the same time. Technically, from the point of view of the free energy principle, what you're looking for is renormalizability, uh, the mathematical application of the same rule mm -hmm. at different levels and scales of organization. Um, and mm -hmm. that's you know, a, a current focus of research in, 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 many, um, in many disciplines or, you know, uh, amongst people I know. The other thing, the agency, I think, is absolutely crucial. I mean, if you believe that the universe um, is essentially a random dynamical system, what you are saying is that the, the, the variables and states of the universe evolve, which means that they have a trajectory. If they have a trajectory, then if you want to understand that trajectory in a normative sense, it's basically doing some form of gradient descent, some sort of either hill climbing or hill descending, which gives you this sort of teleological optimization perspective. But in so doing, even an elementary particle is in effect selecting a path to pursue. Mm -hmm. So in that elemental sense, there has to be agency because there's time. You can't have dynamics without time. And if there's time, then there are trajectories. If there are trajectories, then I go over there and I don't go over there. So you know, I agree entirely that you can't, you can't move away from or deny an agential aspect even to elementary particles. Having said that, I, I think there is a fundamental difference between agency that involves planning and agency that is just an expression of density dynamics. Um, so my favorite example is the difference between a virus and a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> the, the two Vs, yeah. Two Vs. Um, the, you know, the, the virus you know, you, you know, certainly has, um, has attained a non-equilibrium steady state. It's a, it's a beautiful little model of its eco-niche, its, you know, its milieu in which it survives. It does all the right things entailed in its, um, in its sort of molecular structure and kinetics um, are all the right substrates to be interpreted as a model of the kind of inputs and outputs in the world the intracellular world usually that uh, that it inhabits um, and one could say the same as a vegan but a vegan of course can do a lot more than a virus and i think then we come back to to, to the notion of planning to be able to choose the trajectory to choose the way yeah, forward yeah. And, that, and that's an interesting interface right i mean so so there must be transitional spaces where it's difficult to tell whether there's planning going on so what occupies those transitional spaces and how do you get from one to the other um mathematically um it's quite clear it's just the temporal depth or her the horizon that your model affords so if you have the ability to plan by definition you must have a model of the consequences of action so we're talking before um, the, the normative or teleological offering of um, the free energy principle and every all, all, all sorts of other um, global theories that, that are, if you like, subsumed under that, um, is the, the ability to um, explain the world. If that explanation covers the system's own action, then the generative model or the model that is generating the consequences of um, some unobservable causes can then generate the consequences of action. So the crucial mm -hmm. move here 
as the causes of your sensations now subsume your own actions. So if you've got a generative model that can generate the consequences of your actions, then you're in a position to plan. I'll put that another way, which is how I started the, this very long sentence. If you can plan, then by definition, you must have a generative model of the consequences of your action in the future. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the future, now says, well, um, you've got a generative model with the temporal depth, with the horizon. So then you can ask, well, how far into the future can I see? Well, in a sense, a virus could probably see a few nanoseconds or milliseconds into the future simply by committing to a particular trajectory. But of course, a vegan can not only see a few milliseconds into the future, she can uh, see um, minutes, hours, days, months in terms yeah, of half you know, a century. Yeah. Half yeah. a century, exactly. Yeah. Um, so certain systems, certain creatures will have this temporal depth simply because they have generative models of the consequences of their actions. So I think that's a much richer um, and important aspect of um, agency in the sense that we were, that we were yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, I agree, yeah. I agree. Like Art said, we talked to so many folks about agency and we're, uh, we're, we're, we've totally had the Kool-Aid. We're we're on board, but in evolutionary biology, agency has been taboo. I mean, I think for most people, it continues to be. So perhaps we can onboard some skeptics by talking a little bit about Markov blankets and the nuts and bolts of how these updating processes happen. In route about maybe Luca and how we go from non-living to living. Um, I don't know, Markov blanket is not quite the the right the right wording. But, but that particular transition, you alluded to Mike's interest in multicellular life, but what about life from non-life? Right. <laughs> we only ask the tough ones. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, just as an aside, before we, uh, we, we try and tackle that, I was just thinking about Eva Jablonka's notion of, of um, where she's looking at the evolutionary process to try and find those sort of transitions, those markers mm -hmm. uh, that to my... Um, to my more simple mind, would simply be evidence of, of the, the ability to plan, basically. The, 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 this temporal depth has now um, exceeded a particular um, um, threshold that now qualifies um, this creature, this system, this phenotype as an agent in a vegan as opposed to a, to a, you know, a virus sense. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think you know, bringing evolution um, and agency in terms of theoretical biology to the table is, is exactly the right move. And um, clearly people have, you know, have um, uh, exploited that in terms of um, um, you know, various formulations. Um, but you're asking a slightly um, simpler and deeper question is you know, what's the difference between a, um, a Markov blanket that one would ascribe life, a biotic system, and a non-biotic system. Um, but you've, you've, you've been a bit cheeky. You've talked about Markov blankets. <laughs> we have to start that first, yes. <laughs> so, would you do it or would you like to do it? Well, no, I think, I think it's probably more appropriate that you do it. <laughs> right. okay. So um, at its simplest, a Markov blanket is just um, a way of partitioning the states of a universe into a system of interest, say you or me or the virus or the vegan, and everything else. Um, more specifically, 
it's a partition, a dividing um, into um, three sets of states, those states that are internal to a system, those states that are external to the system, and then some intervening states that mediate the exchange between the inside and the outside. So if you were um, a physicist, or if you go back to your sort of um, schoolboy physics, the Markov blanket enshrouds the internal states and would play the role of a sort of heat map or a thermal reservoir that you know people make certain assumptions about that contextualize the dynamics and the evolution or probability distributions you know say the thermodynamics of some idealized gas that would constitute the internal states if you're a biologist then it, you know you can think of this as the cell surface it's the thing that sort of together with the internal states constitutes the unit of um description of, of discussion um, and is responsible for mediating the reciprocal, the two-way causal exchange between the inside and the outside. Mathematically, it inherits from the, uh, the work of, um, of Pearl um, in Bayesian networks and is defined operationally in terms of what's called conditional independence, which mm -hmm. means that, quite simply, if I wanted to know how my internal states are going to change um, in the future, in the immediate future, then I only need to know the Markov blanket states, the surrounding states. I don't need to know the rest of the universe. So that means that the internal states are conditionally independent of the external states given the Markov blanket state. So the Markov blanket um, provides a boundary. And indeed, it's exactly, I think, the kind of boundary that Schrodinger was marveling at in, you know, in his infamous question or famous question, you know, what is life? So the question now can be reduced from the point of view of the free energy principle or your question. There are clear lots of things in the universe um, and everything basically calls upon uh, the notion of a Markov blanket because to be able to identify the thing, you have to differentiate the states of the thing from nothing or everything else. So what you're saying is, what Markov, what aspects of a Markov blanket distinguish between a living and a non-living thing? Um, I think the, um, the the simplest answer to that um, is refers back, I think, to um, to the agency when we talk about living things being clearly um, biotic and not in this sort of grey zone of things like prions, a certain proteins for example, that you will find in the brain that behave a little bit like viruses, but you can't quite tell whether they're actually a chemical or like a virus, another kind of very elemental creature. So I, I think that the, you know, the, there are going to be a number of gradations um, that define certain kinds of life. And I think the notion of agency is, is going to be one that's very clearly useful in demarcating creatures that can plan and not plan. However, that doesn't really demarcate a virus from a stone. So the, <laughs> the question, the question is, what what is special about the Markov blanket um, of a stone and the Markov blanket of, of a virus? Um, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can certainly tell you where I think mathematically you're likely to find that answer. And it's um, it's in the information geometry. It's in the, um, if you like, the, the way that you would interpret the dynamics of a stone or a virus 
in a representational context. So before we were talking about beliefs um, and the key move of the free energy principle is to associate these sort of subpersonal, non-propositional beliefs, these conditional probability distributions with the internal states. So now you've got a calculus where the internal state of something stands in for, parameterizes, um, plays the role of the sufficient statistics of a probability distribution or density, namely a belief. So once you've made that move, and in fact, it's mathematically an essential move because the, the variation free energy is a function of these posterior or conditional uh, or Bayesian beliefs. So you have, to, you have to make that move. You have to commit to saying there are certain states of, of the universe that encode um, beliefs or probability densities. Once you've done that, you invoke an information geometry um, and put simply, what that information geometry gives you is a, is a space where every state, say every internal state, corresponds to a particular belief. So if you move around in this state, you're changing your mind. Obviously, if you're a virus, it's not, <laughs> it's not a personal mind. But yeah, mind no. writ large, yeah. An elemental. Uh, uh, I, 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 I think that's a really nice notion because, you know, very often in Bayesian statistics, when you understand the mechanics that we're talking about, the Bayesian mechanics that we're talking about here as the internal states of something change in response to sensory impressions on the Markov blanket afforded by external states, you're literally moving through this information geometry and you're changing your mind, updating your beliefs, often referred to as Bayesian mm -hmm. belief updating. And that's what the free energy principle describes. It, it prescribes a rule for the belief updating that is in that is just a, a, a description of internal dynamics in neuroactivity or intracellular changes in response to these sensory impressions on the on the Markov blanket. Um, so on that view, then the question about what's life versus non-life is basically what is, um, what's the difference between a stone and the virus? Well, the stone doesn't change its mind, whereas the virus does. The virus has internal dynamics that change and course out a particular trajectory where you've got a change of mind a, and effectively a belief updating on this teleological interpretation of dynamics that can be um, measured in terms of what's called an information length, which literally measures you know, how much I've changed my mind. Viruses change their mind, stones don't. So I would, I would say that there are certain Markov blankets that um, can be quantified and characterized in terms of their information geometry, and in particular the information length um, can be characterized as, as living and biological and certain ones that, that cannot. And it all boils down to basically the, the, uh, the internal dynamics. So one thing that, I mean, not just the difference between stones and viruses, but as we start to think about the evolution of other forms of life that I've not been able to get my head around is where this prior distribution comes from. So how is that originally set? And do we have any idea about what happened to produce a Markov blanket like a virus from its quote unquote ancestor, a stone? I mean, how, how does that cocktail come to be that, that set of distribution, that set of priors come to exist for a virus? Right. Um, 
you know, I'm sure you know the answer to that question because <laughs> you've talked to all the people who know the answer. Uh, but you know, one answer is we've already talked about. We've talked about the emergence of multicellular um, organisms from a single cell uh, organism. Um, so this, this imperative um, to minimize free energy is just a description using the word minimize, which I repeat has this sort of teleological aspect, but it's just as a description of systems that are um, changing to attain their most likely configuration. You know, that's the marginal likelihood interpretation. That's the original surprise. So systems that exist um, over all time scales, because remember, we're still assuming that this applies all the way up and all the way down, both in space and in time. Um, so we're just talking about systems that have an endpoint, that have a non-equilibrium steady state that defines a particular probability distribution over a likelihood distribution over um, the states that they occupy. And the system will eventually converge to that. So it is just minimizing its surprise as time progresses. That looks as if it's trying to minimize its, um, its, its free energy. Um, and evolution is just this process in the context of the particular um, flora and fauna, which, which we love and can recognize in our particular eco-niche. Um, so the question is, you know, um, is it remarkable that you will get um, multicellular organisms? Uh, is it remarkable you'll get populations? Um, um, no, it's not remarkable. There's a very simple argument which, which um, tells you that um, it's unremarkable. Uh, if it is the case, it looks as if anything that exists is um, trying to minimize its surprise, then it's naturally going to prefer being in situations where it can predict everything around it. What's the easiest way to ensure um, or underwrite that uh, predictability is to make sure that this, this entire world is composed of things like it so mm. that we can all predict each other. You know, it is, if you like, um, almost, um, it couldn't be any other way. You're, you're going to get sort of cells who constitute their eco-niche by putting other cells like them around them and other <laughs> cells around them like them, simply so that they can all maximize or look as if they are um, minimizing the surprise from the signals that are being generated. So it may well be, uh, you know, and this is beyond the free energy principle. The, 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 you know, um, there are lots of people, or there are a handful of people around the world work, working on this. Uh, Kate Jeffries has written some very nice papers, you know, looking at the, the emergence of increasingly complex um, arrangements, you know, from my point of view, Markov blankets of Markov blankets, and how this may be inevitable. From an uh, information theoretic point of view, it, it is inevitable. Um, and all you need to worry about now is, well, how do you get a single cell from a primordial soup? <laughs> not a small problem, but yeah. <laughs> it's not, but it has been solved. I, yeah, I, I, read, yeah. I read last year that somebody had managed to do that. There is an interesting sort of side issue here about the, the conditions for these Markov blankets to emerge of a biotic sort. If we just go back to what I was saying before about the difference between a stone and a virus, that the internal dynamics have to have these um, long information lengths, these trajectories through, through effectively an information or a belief space, um, which means that the, from a thermodynamic point of view, you, you're, you're talking about a particular scale and a particular balance between random fluctuations and deterministic dynamics 
um, at a, a particular thermodynamic temperature. So you wouldn't find this kind of process happening on a quantum level. You wouldn't find this kind of process um, happening at a very, very low temperature. So there are certain sort of Goldilocks um, domains where you can have a primordial soup that can mm -hmm. give rise to lipid layers that can give rise to little globulates of fat that can give rise to globulates and and, 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 and so on and ultimately cells and you have to have the right sort of physical environment for the coalescence of this informational architecture and the information density yeah um, let me ask about this word surprise which you've used a number of times and um, is threaded throughout a lot of your your thinking and writing and and if I just just sort of state my my plain understanding of surprise. So if, if I have constructed a probability distribution of things that I expect, then the further something is outside of that distribution, the further into the tails, the greater is my surprise, right? And so the free energy principle is partly about you know updating your priors and constructing probability distributions that minimize your surprise. Um, but but I can I can see that there could be both negative and positive aspects to surprise, right? So like like a uh, a negative surprise would be I'm I'm out for a walk. I don't anticipate being attacked by a mugger, but but I am, right? And so you know, and for an organism in the world, that might be being being attacked by a predator. But I I could also imagine you know walking along the road and and stumbling upon a uh, a chest that has a million dollars in it, right? And that would be a very positive surprise. And so it seems like there's, a, there's an asymmetry to surprise. It can be positive or negative, and yet the free energy principle is asking you to minimize minimize that. So how do you, how do you resolve those those things? It's right, a brilliant question. Um, it's resolved very much along the lines that we we're talking about before um, uh, in terms of the difference between the surprise are associated with the sensorium now uh, at this point in time and the surprise that I expect or anticipate in the future. Um, um, so there are a number of ways to, to, um, to understand that. I, I think it's really important to understand because it, it, you know, what it does is it, it paves a way to understanding formally why we are curious creatures. Um, so, you know, even before you found out there was a million uh, dollars in your chest, you would have probably been very curious to open the box and see what was in what was in that. And that, you know, you have to understand that kind of behaviour. So um, I'm going to try and do it mathematically, uh, and that if that doesn't work, and do it um, sort of more heuristically. But mathematically, you're absolutely right. The, the, the surprise I'm talking about um, is shorthand for something that tribe has called surprise owl, which itself is um, a sort of um, a colloquial way of talking about an information theory, self-information. It is simply the negative log probability of an outcome given a belief about the likelihood of that outcome conditioned upon a model uh, that could simply be the shape of that, um, that, that, that probability distribution. So that negative log likelihood um, or marginal likelihood, marginalizing out everything that I don't know in, that would you know, cause this, this outcome, just is self-information. That is surprisal. That is surprise. So it's a very simple concept, um, which just scores the implausibility of something happening. Now, the reason I'm sort of dragging you through all that is that if you go to Wikipedia or you remember your, um, your high school physics, 
you'll remember that the average or the expected self-information is entropy, which means that the expected surprise is entropy, and entropy is just uncertainty. So if we're saying that creatures are compelled to minimize surprise in the moment, and we now roll out into the future, because notice that you're using the word anticipate in all of your examples. So we're coming mm -hmm. back to this sort of in the future again. So now we're not talking about surprise, we're talking about expected surprise that I anticipate. Mm -hmm. But we just said that expected surprise is uncertainty. So minimizing surprise in the moment translates once we move into this more agential, future-orientated application of the free energy principle, which you know, I would refer to as active inference. We're talking about the imperative to minimize expected surprise, which is the imperative to minimize uncertainty. So that's how you resolve the paradox. That the same imperative that tries to um, explain why you minimize surprise in the moment, why you try and avoid prediction errors by updating your beliefs when taken into the future, when taken in the context of anticipation and consequent upon some agency or some action, now forces us to be curious in the sense we want to resolve uncertainty. We're seeking for information gain. So what that means is that living creatures will, in virtue of the fact that they can plan and they have these deep generative uh, models or the consequences of action, will always choose those actions that minimize their expected surprise, that brings with it a resolution of uncertainty. There is another part to it, which comes back to, to Marty's question about sort of, you know, where do the priors come from? So, you know, certainly I can be um, surprised by being mugged because a priori, I um, believe I'm not the kind of person that gets, gets mugged. I have to believe that because if I don't, then I'm going to expose myself to situations where I'm going to get mugged all, all the time. I'm going to believe I'm not the kind of thing that gets mugged. Um, and therefore, if I get mugged, I'm going to be surprised. And therefore, I'm going to choose those courses of actions that minimize my expected surprise by choosing to go to places where I'm unlikely to get mugged. Mm -hmm. So there's also this pragmatic uh, part to the expected surprise or the expected free energy uh, that contextualizes this epistemic curiosity, intrinsic part to um, uh, score the probability of committing to this course of action or, or that course, course of action. It's a great question. You know, originally came up in philosophy as the dark room problem. So just to celebrate you know, this apparent paradox that you're trying to minimize surprise, which of course throws away novelty and sensation seeking, um, was formulated as the dark room problem. Well, if I want to minimize surprise, why don't I just go into a dark room lie down <laughs> and be done with it <laughs> i could predict everything from there on and, and that's a great, that's a great argument <laughs> i mean there were papers uh, written about that um uh, because the resolution of that is the first thing i do when i go into a dark room is to turn on the lights to resolve uncertainty about what i'm likely to bump into um yeah. when yeah, i yeah, so yeah, right. the full picture um i think very comfortably accommodates curiosity and novelty and salience you know if I look over there, will I resolve my uncertainty about what, what I'm looking at? If I ask you this question, 
can I resolve my uncertainty about what I think you're asking? You know, this, this might also be a very sort of human-centric way of, of thinking about surprise, right? Because I'm wondering about the distribution of positive and negative surprises for organisms out in nature. And it could be that, you know, the vast majority of times that they're surprised, it's it's negative. It's, it's lethal. You know, if 95 or 99 percent of the surprises are really bad news, then, you know, it seems like you should just anticipate that surprise is bad, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, and in that in that sort of vein, of course, uncertainty is bad as well. Um, uh, and I'm saying that because I know that you like you want to talk about stress. Uh, you know, I, that's absolutely right. Uh, you, know, I, you could even make it more deflationary and just say, well, look, if creatures go around seeking out surprising um, outcomes or outcomes that they expect <laughs> will be surprising, then they're going to kill themselves off very very quickly by definition. Yeah. Because remember surprisal or self-information is just the probability of some sensations given a model of the world, the econiche. If the model is the phenotype, then surprise mathematically just means being in sensory or physiological states that are highly unlikely given I am a virus or given that I am a vegan. So it's just a surprise is beyond the, if you like, the sort of the, the folk psychology aspect of it's implausible. It, it scores um, the compatibility of those sensory states with being you know, a virus or a vegan. That right, is a lie. Right. And that's almost negative by, by definition, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if I brilliant. got thermoreceptor inputs saying that I was at 48 degrees Celsius or 24 degrees Celsius, then I wouldn't be me anymore. That would be really, really surprising, and I'd be dead. (laughs) How should we think about um, DNA? Because in a way, it seems like that's an accommodation mechanism for surprisal, but it it just keeps coming back to me that it presents a sort of timescales problem about I mean, how, how does a Markov blanket operate with this as an element of its internal states, I guess, plus a more immediate sorts of conditions? And then if we want to go into this direction, boy, we talk a lot about phenotypic plasticity on this show. So we'll table that one for a bit and just how, how should we think about DNA in the context of free energy? So I think the best way to think about that actually refers back to your other question about evolution and where do priors come from. So, you know, from my point of view, as a phenotype, much of my generative model, perhaps I should just say explicitly that the generative model mathematically is just a joint probability distribution over causes and consequences that is split into or can be carved into a likelihood and prior. So when we talk about priors, what we are talking about is an encoded probability distribution about causes, about the way things uh, work and, and generate the outcomes. So I, as a phenotype, embody, entail all sorts of priors. Um, and I'm going beyond the brain here. The very fact that I have certain photoreceptors that have a, a particular sensitivity to different wavelengths is a prior belief that I am going to exchange across my Markov blanket with a world where the sensory states of my Markov blanket are going to impinge at these particular wavelengths, you know, the irradiant, the, the wavelength um, common in, in irradiant illumination, say from the sun. So as a phenotype, I already have built in structural priors endowed by evolution 
this is evolution's prior belief that mm -hmm. this is the kind of phenotype that maximizes its evidence or maximizes its marginal likelihood, the likelihood of uh, being there in the, say, the next generation. So this is very much a, a Bayesian take on natural selection. So technically it's um, uh, recasting uh, in the spirit of people like um, Frank and other people, uh, John Campbell. Um, it's recasting natural selection as Bayesian model selection, where the phenotype is the model. So the structure of the phenotype embodies um, all sorts of really important priors. Um, but of course, also, I will have um, neuronally encoded coded priors. I will have sort of homeostatic set points that are all specified epigenetically that ultimately um, are constrained by the, uh, by the DNA. So you know, I will have um, a subpersonal neurochemical neuroendocrine prior um, about certain homeostatic states, say, you know, um, blood osmolality, um, um, glucose levels, and all of, all the physiology that makes me a viable thing that uh, has this steady state. So that all comes from the DNA. Um, and of course, that at a, um, coming back to all the way up and all the way down, the same kinds of processes are operating at a slow evolutionary time scale a free energy minimizing process at evolutionary timescale is basically Bayesian model selection using um, the evidence lower bound to select or the variation of free energy to select the, uh, the next good hypothesis on the mm -hmm. model that mm -hmm. is the phenotype. But that um, is at a slower timescale that contextualizes the fast developmental phenotypic plasticity that you would see within somatic time. Mm -hmm. So again, what we're seeing is this sort of, you know, how a, a slow, higher level contextualizes the same kind of free energy minimizing process at a lower level, which would be developmental learning, that itself contextualizes an even faster process, which would be neural activity and inference and perceptual synthesis. So all of these processes all comply with this sort of renormalizability in the sense that they all can be written down as, um, or look as if they are a minimization process at different scales. But um, crucially, each scale contextualizes the scale be uh, before. So I would imagine, you know, you know, if you if you took a sort of coarse grained approach to humans and just sort of sampled the DNA, then you would find that the DNA was evolving in a way to maximize model evidence or minimize uh, free energy or maximize marginal likelihood of what? Well, of that DNA being there, because but to be there, it has to be carried by a phenotype. So what, you know, you've got you've got I think here quite a natural explanation for natural selection in terms of the same kind of Bayesian mechanics that we would apply to associative learning during your development, experience-dependent plasticity um, in adulthood, um, uh, and indeed at an even faster time scale, um, perceptual synthesis, inferring what's going on there in the moment, and indeed planning as inference. So how? I didn't quite pick on it. I mean, as an evolutionary biologist, you know, we're indoctrinated about the role of mutation in, um, well, almost everything biology. How should we think about mutation? And I mean, as a follow-on, genetic determinism by and large, you know, there's no such, it's, it's, that's such a simplistic concept, right? So much comes about through the interactions of you know, very, very complex sorts of interactions. So how in the world did we end up with such a complicated sort of way of <laughs> The universe realizing which phenotypes are going to make the most sense. I mean, this is just is at least not an efficient pathway. Um, 
Sorry, you 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 stumped me with your last uh, your last <laughs> sentence. Um, so I was immediately thinking, what would be the most efficient way of doing it? Of course, that's the that's the free energy principle. So, uh, was, so ignoring your clever little add-on right at the end, and 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 just so moving back and saying, well, look, you know, where does variation? You know, if I was Ross Ashby, I'd be talking about the law of requisite of requisite variety, for example. Uh, if I was in machine learning or stochastic optimization, I'd be talking, um, you know, about all the random fluctuations that are necessary to um, to make most efficient um, a, a, an optimization scheme or gradient descent. Um, I think um, my favourite analogy, though, is 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 really um, just a, a scientist. You know, if it is the case that the phenotype encoded by DNA is a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis that evolution is putting forward for the best fit for this particular possibly self-constructed eco-niche. Then what, um, what, what metaphor can you use to um, uh, understand the most efficient kind of evolution? Well, what, what you're talking about is the best kind of scientist. So what creates a good scientist? The ability to ask the right questions and to have hypotheses that no one else has had before. So, it would be, to my mind, inconceivable that Bayesian models, natural selection as Bayesian model selection could possibly work unless you had a variety, a repertoire of hypotheses or models mm -hmm. from which to select. The very mm -hmm. word selection immediately entails having uh, a number of alternative hypotheses. And of course, the most efficient scientists are those that can uh, have plausible but diverse that inherit from and can be sort of you know looked at as uh, in terms of uh, mutations of older ideas but it is having the you know the right ability to explore the space of models um, um, and their structure so i mentioned the word structure here because this i think has very close connections with the notion of structure learning in radical constructivism for example people the work of people like josh tenenbaum um, where the, the idea now is that not only do you want to optimize the phenotype and optimize all the parameters of a generative model, the connection strengths in your brain, you know, during, say, neurodevelopmental or experience-dependent plasticity, but you also want to um, optimize the very structure of your brain. You know, how, if you're doing deep learning, how many levels do you mm -hmm. put in your deep neural network? Um, and that problem of structure learning is quite a deep problem in the sense that you know, you have to be able to explore plausible structures. And I think that, that mutation is simply the way that natural selection has found to explore different structures, different hypotheses that then are scored in terms of their evidence and marginal likelihood, their adaptive fitness, um, the negative uh, free energy. Um, and then um, the, the good ones are selected, the good hypotheses are returned, you generate some alternative hypotheses through mutation, and so you, and so you, um, and so you, you continue. Um, so from that perspective, the, the mutations that play the role of alternative hypotheses are absolutely essential in order for a free energy minimizing or evidence maximizing um, selective process to actually operate. So coming back to your, your last thing, though, is that the most efficient way of doing it? Well, strictly speaking, it's not. Um, we were talking about sort of uh, minimizing expected surprise and this sort of intrinsic aspect where we 
um, want to resolve the most uncertainty, which means that in principle, one could devise an optimization scheme that included mutations where you actually work out, well, if I did that, how much would I um, learn about what's the best kind of model? If you're asking, are random mutations um, um, the most efficient, then they're probably not, which means that genetic algorithms are probably not the most efficient way to finesse a stick, so, you know, um, an optimization scheme. Turn that on its head, I suspect that what the, the evolution has, doesn't use random mutations. I, says, I mean, you know more about it than I will, so I'll, I'll turn this into a question. Could you, um, could you find evidence that the rate of mutation and the nature of mutations is itself subject to selective pressure? And if mm. it is, then it may be that the kind of mutations that we are necessary to explore this hypothesis space may themselves be the most efficient. So I'm thinking here about selection for selectability, for example. It, you know, do you think that the, the mutations are random? Well, um, that's a that's a great big <laughs> um, issue. I think there's evidence that at for many different loci, there is selection for the, the sort of thing that you're talking about. I mean, I'm thinking in particular, um, you know, the the way that uh, B and T cells can work to detect pathogens. So there is, yeah, there's an ability in per particular portions of the genome to become better fit to the conditions that they find themselves in. I mean, not necessarily everywhere. This is a taboo sort of thing. There's a guy by the name of um, James Shapiro at Chicago who's written a, a nice book on evolution in the view from the 21st century about different regions of the genome and the extent to which they mutate. And I think generally they are, the, the speculation that you're making is consistent with the sorts of data that exist. To what extent there are other outliers that you know don't hold up and those don't get as much attention, I'm not really sure. But there's quite a few examples of yeah, these mutator loci. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's, that's brilliant. I, yeah. I, in neurobiology, in my world, um, this sort of mutation rate and optimizing it and inferring what the best mutation is is very very central uh, in the sense it's it's almost like a learning rate. So you have so, you know. So one example would be um, behavior economics and volatility. So there are different kinds of choices and different learning rates that are base optimal when you have a very volatile situation or market or uh, environment versus mm -hmm. when you have a very stable one. You know, uncertainty gets get, gets back into the game here because the you know very often the mutation rate or the learning rate um, is determined by your estimate of the uncertainty or the precision. Of various fluctuations, so mm -hmm. it would be it would be great if evolution has all had preempted. Well, so along these lines, I mean, one of the things not, not try not to be too indulgent when we when we have these uh, these shows, but um, one of my one of the things my lab is interested in is the evolution of uh, regulatory sites within within genes, in particular CPG sites within promoters, the the regions that are you know largely methylated or not, and that's uh, pretty profoundly affecting gene expression, cell differentiation, these kinds of things. So we study these in invasive species. And this is a question that I was also going to ask you whether you've ever thought about the possibility that certain living things might have more nimble Markov blankets, because there are cer certain types of organisms that live in these unpredictable, uncertain types of habitats, or just by the nature of us moving them around, we put them in places that their ancestors and their genomes never saw in the past. In our study species, this house sparrow, you know, that you probably have quite a few in your garden, um, maybe not as many now as, as used to be, but um, 
what we're interested in in these species and what we've seen a lot of evidence for is that in areas where these animals were just recently introduced, they have a lot of what we call this epigenetic potential, a lot of genetic variation for the propensity to methylate the genome and therefore influence gene expression. And most of what we've paid attention to so far is about the immune system. So there is, you know, even in the short windows of time and a few species so far, evidence for these kinds of things. But it's just something that, you know, starting to come on board and enter the minds of a lot of evolutionary biologists. Well, that's, I didn't know that's, that's brilliant. Um, you know, as I say, it, it's very much the second order um, optimization, these second order, if you like, hyperparameters, you know, like mutation rates and precisions that dominate when it comes to trying to understand intersubject variability and in particular mm. psychiatry as well. And if you just think about it, all the therapeutic interventions in psychiatry that are pharmacological they all act on classical neuromodulators, which is exactly the, um, those modulators that control the rate of learning or how sensitive you are to, the, um, to information that, from a Bayes optimal point of view, should be a function of its predictability or its, or its volatility or, or its changeability. You, 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 if you're, if you're um, on one view, your house sparrow um, um, example um, that sounds to, to me to be the sort of the the, uh, the evolutionary homologue of sort of cutting edge neuropharmacology. How <laughs> <laughs> well, sparrows have never been described that way before. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I, I want to try to articulate something I've been sitting here stewing about for the last ten minutes, and this is inspired by what you were just saying about um, the roles of DNA and and updating priors over evolutionary timescales. So. Um, we, we've talked, I mentioned these guys before, but Scott Turner and, and Dennis Walsh, and, and they both use this idea of, they, they generalize the idea of a gene to something called memory tokens. They use this phrase. And, and what they mean is that there's actually many kinds of historical information that come forward into the present that are, are not genes, right? Genes are a memory token, but there are many other kinds of memory tokens that are also influencing biological systems in, in the present. And these are things like uh, ecological inheritance or maternal effects. So the kinds of, you know, things that mothers load up their eggs with. Um, even more proximal timescales, there's, you know, my, my phys physiological state now depends on what I ate and the exercise I got over the last uh, last week. And so all of those things are sort of coming together uh, to influence who, who I am and what any organism is right right now. And it struck me that um, that maybe there's a way to link that to your ideas about about updating priors over different timescales that that you know we have to have a whole range of systems you know from the, the longest temporal scales that are that are uh, accommodated by changes in DNA sequences to the most proximal ones which are accommodated by say changes in the way my, my brain is processing information right now and that these are these are sort of an interlocking set of systems that are updating priors over all of these time scales to deal with you know all these potential pasts and and futures at, at different time scales. So so are memory tokens like a is that a good way to think about about that time scale problem? Yes, I, I think so. Um, so I'm just trying to see where you would put memory tokens um, in, in, into into the maths, and I think that they would be. I think as you say, they would they would be basically um, a description of, of priors uh, and crucially. 
um, I think you're absolutely right that you have to consider that the priors pertain to multiple different levels, even within a hierarchical generative model of the kind that you might find in your brain, where you've got sort of slow beliefs and narratives of, that underlie what you're saying, or indeed um, your career choices inside the frontal cortex, and then you could have very fast brainstem responses in the auditory system uh, that are changing their beliefs every few hundred milliseconds, if not, if not more quickly. But beyond that, you've then got all the different scales that you, you, you spoke about from you know, the, your body and your physiology, right through to evolutionary psychology and you know, the sort of um, even um, cultural niche construction. You, I think you'd have to fold into this um, multi-level hmm. co-evolutionary perspective. Um, and you know, in the service of what? Well, just in, you know, changing things. Now, things could be from DNA to your physiology that stand in for beliefs about the causes of everything that you're experiencing at those um, at those uh, those different uh, timescales. So, you know, if memory tokens are read as priors, technically um, they're referred to in Bayesian statistics as empirical priors. Why? Well, because in a hierarchical context. So this is an, a, a, a truism I think you'll like, even though you'll probably forget it as soon as I said it, but I think, I think it, it formally speaks exactly to your point. When you're talking about a generative model and you're um, a Bayesian statistician, you carve it into the priors and the likelihood. But what about a hierarchical generative model where you've got sort of um, very sort of deep, slow scales that providing constraining priors on the level below and then that level below provides constraints and priors on the level below that as soon as you have that you have what's called a hierarchical generative model as soon as you have that then you look at the sort of the beliefs at an intermediate level it's not the highest nor is it the lowest data um, pointing level which would be uh, described as a likelihood are these things in the middle likelihoods or priors, and people call them empirical priors. Why? Because they can be changed by the data. By an empirical experiment, you can change your prior beliefs. So there's a deep formal mathematical relationship between hierarchical generative models and empirical, updatable, trainable priors that do belief updating. And I think that's basically what you're saying. You're saying is there's a hierarchy of stuff going on here. There's no one level. There's no unit of selection. There's no one particular level that's yeah. trying to optimize its adaptive fitness or, from my point yeah. of view, minimize its free energy. It's all right the way up and right the way down uh, in this hierarchy, all in the service of uh, optimizing the same kind of quantity. What would that look like at an intermediate level? It would look like belief updating or learning of empirical prize. And you know, that would entail everything below in the hierarchy that would be contributing the evidence for that belief updating. Um, and from the other perspective, that updated empirical prior, whether it's going to be the DNA or whether it's going to be um, the fact you've been to the gym for the past month every day, you know, these are then providing top-down constraints mm -hmm. on your belief updating at, at, you know, at faster timescales, your experience, your, you know, the way that you um, perceive your lived world and plan within that world. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Marty and I have been thinking about this too, just in relation to 
what we view as over-pervasive gene centrism in explaining phenotypes, right? I mean, uh, this sort of a, uh, we're on board with this idea that there are many different kinds of memory tokens that impinge on current phenotypes. And it feels to us like many biologists have this sort of over-reliance on, on the importance of genes, which are undoubtedly important, but they're one of, of many things. So, so stress, we keep uh, saying we're going to talk about stress. Really, we've actually touched on a lot of the areas that were some of the specific questions that I had about stress. So I'm going to cut right to the chase. And I think uh, Art and I, well, I don't think I know, Art and I are much more empiricists than theoreticians, although a lot of my colleagues called me a philosopher. <laughs> I've never called you a philosopher. <laughs> no, you're you're not, maybe because you're in a comparable boat. Um, how, how should... In the context of stress, how should empiricists, what, what could empiricists take from the free energy principle? And, you know, to, to turn it around, what sorts of data might be useful um, from empiricists? And especially if, if we want to go down the stress road and talk about endocrinology and maybe the glucocorticoids. And I'm also intrigued if, if this is not too broad to talk about even the immune system. I mean, these other sorts of physiological systems what are the data that would be useful and what kinds of data should we aspire to collect given that you know, these are very difficult concepts to connect theory and, and data? Well, I, I, that's a really important question, um, particularly when it comes to uh, sort of translational applications. And I mean by translation, translating into, into a clinical context. You know, what does the free energy principle, more particularly active inference, I think, as a sort of um, a process theory um, or speaks to particular process theories that you might uh, apply to understand um, the human brain and uh, you know, its, its body. So I think the first thing to, um, to establish is the, the, the deep link between stress and uncertainty, um, and then ask how might uncertainty be encoded in the brain and the body, um, and by committing to a particular implementation of a free energy minimizing process with planning, because we talk about human beings, um, one can then look for the particular neuronal, endocrine, or immunological substrates or measures that empirically you would be um, looking at, um, usually in the context of either interventions that induced stress, but probably more commonly by comparing people with and without particular stress or anxiety uh, syndromes. Um, so um, just very briefly then, so stress, it looks as if everything that is negatively valenced, everything that is um, um, bad and induces angst um, is accompanied by a loss of confidence in what to do next. So technically, this is focused very much upon that set of unknown causes that our brain as fantastic organs generating fantasies and hypotheses or explanations um, is concerned with, which is the, um, the actions that we're going to commit to our plans. So if I have uncertainty about which plan to pursue, then that looks as if that's the common denominator for most bad, unpleasant um, um, aversive, stressful, anxiety-inducing uh, scenarios. So I, I motivate that from an, um, a whole host of perspectives. Um, originally, it looks as if the biological encoding 
of the um, what I'm going to refer to as precision, which is the inverse of uncertainty. So you can think about precision as confidence. So if I had, for example, two ways forward and I had to make a choice, um, a very precise belief is 100% for, for option number one and 0% for option number two. That would be very precise. A low uh, precision or uh, you know, a 50-50 belief about what I should do next would be very imprecise. That has the maximum entropy. So if you remember before, expected, I'm going to choose those actions that minimize expected free energy or expected surprise, which means I'm going to minimize the entropy or minimize the uncertainty. The worst situation to find oneself in is to have um, a 50-50 uh, high entropy distribution. So the, you know, the worst situation then um, is, is a high um, entropy situation or a loss of confidence about what to do. If one looks at the paradigms, usually sort of uh, economic game-like paradigms or reinforcement learning-like paradigms or choice paradigms in neuroscience and looks at brain responses and see what best correlates with the optimum um, or the base optimal estimate of this precision, this confidence in what I'm going to do. It looks as though the best candidate is dopamine. So this is a nice example of how you can form a hypothesis about what particular bits of um, neuroanatomy or neurophysiology play this role in encoding this kind of belief that um, underwrites, um, in this instance, stress and anxiety. So what that means is you can now interpret um, dopamine, which is you know, um, normally associated with reward and value. You can now interpret a response, a, a, a sudden release of dopamine over a few seconds in response to some set of cues or some intimation that things are going to unfold in a comfortable, rewarding, familiar way. So what you're saying is that basically dopamine is recognizing that there's a precise outcome. I know what's going to happen to me. I know now because I've got my million dollars in this chest that I'm <laughs> going to have a happy, secure life. My wife is going to follow me around. My children are going to, are going to adore me for at least a week. <laughs> if we're lucky. So very often these kinds of rewards are nothing more than signs that you know what's going to happen to you or more specifically, you know how to act. You know what the future contains. And you can generalize that to, um, I think, any form of uncertainty about anything, probably more pertinently, things you're going to do um, will be stressful. So we see that, say, in the current coronavirus outbreak, that it's, it's, it's largely the uncertainty that people find very, very stressful. In economics, you see that the biggest determinant of um, good and bad valence um, reporting of the markets is uncertainty. So it's all in the uncertainty, it's all in the entropy. So um, to answer your question then, what plausible neu um, uh, neuronal, neuroendocrine and immunological um, substrates, variables are likely to play a role in encoding uncertainty? To answer that question, you have to commit to a particular sort of belief updating scheme. A nice example of this is predictive coding. So predictive coding um, is a particular scheme from which you get this sort of minimization of prediction error notion. So in this instance, 
the summer squared prediction error weighted by their precision is under simplifying assumptions, surprise or, um, or, um, or free energy, which means mm -hmm. that the, the brain is in the job of minimizing its precision weighted prediction errors. Um, but to do that, it's also got to predict the precision and it is this precision that underlies uncertainty and stress. So where would precision be encoded in a neuronally plausible implementation of predictive coding? Well, you can just by uh, thinking about this, the form of a precision weighted prediction error, you're multiplying a prediction error by some gain by a precision. Um, technically in uh, engineering, this is a Kalman gain. Physiologically, um, what this means, it's synaptic gain. So you're looking at mechanisms that control synaptic gain that may be the thing that encodes uncertainty that when mm -hmm. it goes wrong um, may well um, cause uh, stress. So now we're back to those kinds of drugs that operate in psychiatry, which change the sensitivity or the gain of a neuronal response to its input. So if the neuron is encoding, uh, say, prediction errors, generally thought to be superficial pyramidal cells in the brain, then if the brain thinks that these prediction errors are very precise and is confident that the, they're reporting something that's very predictable, it will project um, modulatory um, projections to increase the gain so that the neuromodulatory systems are now the things you might think are going wrong in, say, generalized anxiety disorder or anxious depression. And indeed, mm -hmm. it is exactly the drugs that are used to um, ameliorate some of the symptoms of anxiety and anxious depression um, that target these neuromodulatory um, neurotransmitters. So it all fits together very nicely. So I would be looking for evidence for abnormal gain control, synaptic gain control, sometimes referred to as excitation and inhibition balance in terms of responses to particular cues that cause an inference about your intentional set or some choice or some revision of beliefs. If I was an endocrinologist, um, I would be less interested, I think, in the central nervous system, but um, a more extended Markov blanket that encompasses the endocrine system or the neuroendocrine system. Uh, and you, you, you've brought an intriguing notion to, to the table, which is the, you know, the, the immunological status. And I suspect that's, you know, uh, reflects your your personal expertise and <laughs> investment. So you're, you're going you're going to outwit me here. I think no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think it's a really great uh, question. Um, I'm not sure there are so many answers because um, I think it's only recently that people have started to look at um, neuroendocrinology and stress, and particularly sort of um, um, immunology through mm. the lens of this Bayesian mechanics and start to elaborate hypotheses about how you might now rewrite our understanding of the intricate network of um, dependencies between the central nervous system, um, HPA axis, the, the endocrine system and the immunological system. You know, those connections that can be written down in terms of differential equations describing the sort of um, the, you know, the kinetics and the, you know, and the fast and slow influences of one variable on another. That now becomes, if you like, um, uh, the skeleton, the structure of a generative model, and then you have to work out how these differential equations can be interpreted as message passing that implements the belief updating. 
Um, for the brain and for neural hierarchies, that's been done using predictive coding. Similar efforts have started to be um, pursued for the neuroendocrine system, but only within the, to my knowledge, only within the past few years. So you know, these, these are sort of you know, first notions of um, putting a Bayesian mechanics on top of what we know about the, the dynamics and the physiology of neuroendocrine and immunological um, systems. And because it's a hypothesis, now you know, the free energy principle is a principle. It tells you, you know, what things must do to exist or look as if they are doing to exist. It doesn't tell you the precise implementation and the, uh, the mapping to the actual uh, neurobiology. Um, so as soon as you invoke that mapping, that becomes a hypothesis and that now requires an empirical verification. So that, that, you know, that, that's a really important game. I say really important because I'm also a psychiatrist. So for me, this, it's important to understand mm -hmm. these things because that's the whole raison d'etre uh, from the psychiatric point of view for the free energy principle. It's basically, what are the principles that um, can be brought to the table to understand how this system works and how has it gone wrong in this particular patient cohort or, or, this, or this syndrome or in this person. Um, the, the, the immunological aspect is, is even more recent. So Angeli um, Bat, who's one of my uh, erstwhile students until very recently, PhD students, who's just written a paper um, with um, Thomas Parr. I think I was encouraging her to call it immunoceptive inference. They've done exactly this. They, they've taken the sort of the um, the dynamics and the differential equations, the kinetics of the immune system, you know, various sort of T and B cell and different, uh, you know, beyond my knowledge, but they 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 they, they have, they, or she at least has a, an expertise in this domain, um, and then just looked at the structure and the form of these differential equations and said, well, hang on, that looks exactly like predictive coding, but at a slower time scale. And if that's right, what would you expect, and what could you, what stories could you tell? Um, and my favorite story comes from an understanding of precision in the central nervous system as mediating attention. So remember before we're talking about these second order statistics that encode precision or uncertainty. And under predictive coding models of neuronal message passing, they are thought to be implemented by increasing postsynaptic gain in exactly the same way that attention works. So what we're talking about now is a mathematical metaphor or story for selective attention. Mm -hmm. So if I want to attend to this sensory stream, I can now assign those prediction errors, reporting what I can't explain in terms of top-down prediction errors, more precision. And by assigning them more precision, they have more influence on belief updating higher in the hierarchy. What that simply means is I am greasing those pathways selectively mm -hmm. and selectively attending to that kind of information. The information, of course, that matters is just the newsworthy information I didn't predict. It's just the prediction error. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think it's a very plausible and very pleasing way of understanding attention is getting that precision right. How might that translate in terms of immunology? If you go back and look at the um, the immunological variables work out the Markov blanket and then interpret it as a predictive coding in the space of immunodynamics. And the, the beautiful hypothesis that, that Angeli came up with uh, was that pregnancy is basically ignoring immune challenges. 
So um, don't fight off the parasite, right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, I thought it was I was that was great. You know, sort of you know, we we have you know the body, the immune system, me as an immune system. So selectively ignores the fact I've got this little parasite. Well, not me, but say my wife ignores the fact that I've got this little, this lovely little parasite growing inside with you know with all the antigenic challenges. I just ignore that for the moment because you know because that's uh, you know sort of a, a, a known unknown. It's a predictable mm -hmm. uncertainty, and I can optimize that precision just by adjusting the sensitivity to this or, or, or to that. So you get mm -hmm. these sort of wonderful perspectives on the immune system. Of course, the other key challenge is, is what um, uh, we were talking about, the coupling between levels. So we can actually now think about the exchange between the CNS and the peripheral nervous system, the peripheral nervous system and the immune system. Uh, and of course, that, that is a reciprocal exchange. Um, so all sorts of interesting things um, emerge from that. That's probably better exemplified in terms of the, the HPA and, uh, you know, and, the, uh, and the neuroendocrinology um, and understanding um, you know, the, the, the embodied response to high levels of uncertainty or stress and notions of our static load and fatigue and um, of the kind that, say, class, uh, you know, Stefan has written mm -hmm. about. So has Anjali, and I have downloaded the paper, but I've yet, I've yet to read it. Um, have, has she incorporated anything? Have you guys thought about the distributed nature of the immune system? I mean, is there anything about the centralized nature of the brain that makes it a completely different entity for dealing with these problems? Or has that entered in the equations yet? Sure. Um, well, I'm sure Angeli will tell me off if I've got it wrong. But yeah, to be honest, no, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's really interesting because um, looking at the, um, the nature of distributed neuronal processing immediately draws you to questions about functional brain architectures um, and the immediate thing that jumps out at you is the particular sparsity structure which is essential for having markov blankets so you you can even carve up the brain into little packets of blankets markov blankets um, mm -hmm. that are all talking to each other um, one important um, not the only but one important instance of this sort of partitioning that inherits from the sparse connectivity is a hierarchical structure. Um, and the other important, but not exclusive um, architectural feature, uh, the game that inherits from the sparse connectivity is a modularization that may be due to the, uh, well, let me tell you this, why, why it's so important. If it's the case that the phenotype just is or entails a generative model of its lived world that inherits all the right priors from um, you know, co-evolution, evolutionary psychology and good old uh, DNA, then you'd expect the sparsity structure, the nature of the distributed processing to recapitulate the conditional dependencies in the world that it's trying to model. So one powerful example of that is um, the way that the brain explains sensory input that is caused by an object in a particular location. Now, an object in a particular location has two attributes. What is that object and where is it? And these two attributes conspire to produce a particular pattern of sensory uh, visual input. And the way that the brain solves this is in the simplest way possible to celebrate and leverage a very special and universal um, conditional independence which is between what and awareness, by which I mean knowing what something is doesn't tell me where it is, 
and know some, knowing something, knowing where something is doesn't tell me what it is. So it is entirely sufficient for my brain and my generative model to generate a particular output by taking on one part of my brain a what representation, another part of my brain works out where it is, and then I can put them together to actually predict and generate what I'm actually seeing with the red bus there or the yellow pencil over there. The key thing there is that the causal statistical structure of our lived world becomes ingrained or distilled in the anatomical distribution of the brain. Mm -hmm. So you literally have a what pathway or module in the ventral parts of your visual hierarchy and a where part in the dorsal parts. So literally there's a separation that is determined by a lack of um, connections between them. So the idea is that you can learn an enormous amount either about the world in which this brain um, evolved so in principle i could take any um, brain from an alien and tell you a lot about the causal structure of the world in which um, it evolved or put it another way you can start to look for hypothetical mappings between the known causal structure of the you know the um the particular niche in question um and the um and the distributed processing in terms of the sparsity and the adjacency matrices at hand simply because you know that um, the, you know, the Markov blanket has to entail a generative model of the, you know, the outside world in which, it, in which it survives, which means that there must be a particular kind of sparsity in the immune system and the neuroendocrine system. So we're not talking about anatomical sparsity, we're talking about mm -hmm. a neurochemical specificity. Um, so you'd be, I think you'd be looking at the, uh, the adjacency matrix supplied by a network diagram of um, differential equations, dynamics, that would completely describe the dynamics of, of, of say, the neuroendocrine system, the HPA axis, or, or the immune system. And then you'd be looking for a particular sparsity structure, possibly using Markov blankets within that adjacency matrix, and then start to make some um, hypotheses um, of the sort, what versus where. You know, is this part of the system a long-term memory of when, for mm -hmm. example? Uh, and is this part of the system more like what and the content is this kind of you know, antigen or this kind of so period of uncertainty and stress or this kind of stress you know, of, 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 of a, um, an interceptive sort or an emotional or a social sort. You know, so you, you, I, none of this has been done, but in principle, what you can, you know, the, the bottom line is that you can leverage the fact that if we are, we just are, models of our lived world, then there should be some isomorphism between the distributed processing and particularly its sparsity structure um, and the conditional independences in the world that we actually have to model. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know that the immune system has ever really been thought of that way. And just there's a lot of variety in what the architecture of the immune system looks like physically among species and just doesn't seem anything like the physical organization of the brain. So it's really hard to you know, there's no intuition about how those relationships could look. And uh, yeah, not obviously a, a lot of work out there, as you say, this sort of seems that free energy and these kinds of ideas are just now percolating into to immunology. This 
leads us. Art, I'll let you ask this question if you want to do it. We think a lot about the size of organisms. And um, Art, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so I've been super fascinated with scaling and the scaling of especially physiological variables. Um, but um, in relation to your work, so so do you think is there an upper limit to the number? of levels of Markov blankets that you can have in an organism. And, and does that somehow inform uh, what we understand about the, the sort of different sizes of organisms that are possible on the earth, right? There's about 13 or 14 orders of magnitude in, in body size from the smallest to the largest organisms. And does that, is that related to this sort of hierarchy of Markov blankets? I, I think it is, yeah. Um, so I think that, well, just to acknowledge again, this sort of all the way down and all the way up, you know, that, yeah. that's a really important notion to keep in mind. So um, that begs a question, you know, is there any um, preferred scale that you are likely to see um, biotic-like behavior or biological-like behavior or lifelike behavior? Um, so for example, if we just go beyond me and um, the human population and Gaia and just um, model um, Earth as a point and, and you know, do a bit of sort of um, Kepler-esque dynamics you know, and describe the, uh, you know, the motion of the planets, would that be a lifelike kind of self-organization? I think most people will say no, it's not. It doesn't have any planning. Um, you know, this is, uh, to all intents and purposes, just a base Newtonian or classical mechanics. Um, well, let's go the other direction. Uh, so, you know, um, instead of taking Markov blankets and Markov blankets and Markov blankets up to the level of the solar system, let's go back down to the level of um, um, small particles or even, say, uh, um, um, protons and electrons, for example. Um, they clearly have Markov blankets. Are they lifelike? Um, I would say no. Uh, are there principled reasons for this? Um, I think there are. Um, so um, to describe what, why one might think that there is actually um, an upper and a lower bound on lifelike um, scales, um, I'm going to have to introduce um, something called the Helmholtz decomposition. So I, I started off um, by saying that I'd like, if I could speak to anybody, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to hear Helmholtz talk, um, mentioning that, that you, know, you know, he was a great biological thinker, but also he was a great mathematical thinker. One of his mathematical contributions is called the Helmholtz decomposition. And very simply, what this says is any flow, any dynamics can be decomposed into two bits. One does a gradient descent on some potential function. For us, this is the, the, you know, the, the, um, the variational free energy, but um, more generally, it could be a gravitational potential, electrochemical potential. It could be negative adaptive fitness, whatever you want. Um, but if you um, can write it down in terms of a, um, a set of differential equations that have random fluctuations on them, um, you can decompose the flow at any point in some state space into two components that are orthogonal at right angles to each other. One of them is decreasing this, what sometimes is known as a, um, a Lagrangian or a Lyapunov function or the potential, it's called the potential. Um, and the other one is a flow which circulates on the isocontours of that potential energy. So that's called solenoidal flow. 
Now, that solenoidal flow is the kind of thing that explains and characterizes turbulence, for example. So it's the kind of flow that you see when the water swirls in a circular fashion down the bath hole. That's quite important because you can express the flow of any system as a mixture of this gradient flow and this solenoidal flow. And then the question is, well, what would things look like if there was lots and lots of um, the gradient flow and lots and lots of, or, or lots and lots of the solenoidal flow? And you'd say, well, what determines the relative contribution of the gradient flows, the kind of flows that you, we would normally use to, say, explain a, um, a, a, you know, a ball bearing falling down um, you know, a slope? It turns out that the gradient flow depends upon the amplitude of the random fluctuations that are added to the motion of things, which means that if you have very small things, then they generally have very, very high amplitude random fluctuations, and you hardly ever see the solenoidal flow. So what's the classic poster child example of this? It's quantum mechanics. It's very, very small things when the random fluctuations overwhelm. They're so fast and large amplitude, everything's probabilistic mm -hmm. and everything overwhelms the solenoidal flow. At a slightly larger scale, would you say that Brownian motion is a, a form of that sort of randomness? That well, I think, I think uh, not only to not only at a, a larger scale, but at all scales. Yeah, so, so yeah, Einstein okay. Okay. occupied yeah. with, with uh, Brownian yeah. motion as yeah. um, trying to understand that. So a lot of the the, the you know the, the fundamental equations come from the study of of, of Brownian motion. The mm -hmm. Pollen grain has been mm -hmm. buffeted around on the surface mm -hmm. of liquid. This mm -hmm. is exactly the random mm -hmm. fluctuations I'm talking about. What I'm trying to paint a picture of, though, is um, a continuum from very small, fast, hot stuff to very, very large, cold, slow stuff. Um, and uh, going from one level to the next is this part of this um, renormalization. Technically, uh, one can do this using the, uh, the apparatus of the renormalization group. So you can build um, sort of nanoscopic things from quantum and you can build microscopic things from nanoscopic, you can build mesoscopic, you can build macroscopic, you can get up to cosmological scales just by retaining the slow stuff. What happens as you do that is you move from systems where the random fluctuations dominate and there's absolutely no circular or solenoidal flow right through to very large systems such as the solar system where all the random fluctuations are averaged away as you're doing your renormalization through mm -hmm. the scales um, to leave just the solenoidal flow. So what you might imagine is that in any given universe, the very, very small will be governed by very fast random fluctuations and probability distributions. So you never actually even know where it is because it, by the time you've, you've observed it, it's moved because of the random fluctuations versus very, very slow um, cold stuff with very deterministic trajectories that are circular. So you basically have the motion of heavenly bodies. What about life? Well, remember before we were talking about, you know, what are the permissive conditions for life to occur? You have to have a mixture of the random fluctuations and the solenoidal flow. So it can't be at the quantum level and it can't be at the cosmological level. It has to be in between. So I think there is a Goldilocks regime that is beyond, bigger than the quantum, that inherits from the quantum because you've got the renormalization group 
that puts the quantum at the slowest level, but you can't see any solenoidal mixing, any oscillations. So another way of saying that um, uh, distinguishing between a life and non-lifelike Markov blanket is to say that there is no tr non-trivial solenoidal component to the flow. Mm -hmm. So stones don't oscillate, viruses do. The cycle of life, biorhythms, all of these things characterize living things and they're mm -hmm. all part of the solenoidal flow. And to the extent that you go so big, it's just solenoidal flow. This, this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, I feel like you've you've transformed my thinking about scaling here in the last five minutes. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it is ridiculous for me to probably even ask, but should we expect? I mean, how Goldilocks is this? Should we expect that if we go to other parts of the universe and find intelligent life, it'll be human-sized? I mean, clearly it, it won't be incredibly small, but how large is this Goldilocks zone where we could expect to find intelligence like ourselves? Yeah, um, it's, 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 uh, I don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> so just listening to, the, uh, to, to uh, myself over the past uh, couple of minutes, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. If there are... If there is this um, natural, um, so technically it's called um, a renormalization flow. It's a sort of, you know, a systematic mapping and scaling relationship between various aspects of dynamics or Lagrangians as you go from one scale to the next. If that exists um, and is a, your property of, of our universe, then you, I think you're absolutely right that we'd expect to see other intelligent behavior or lifelike behavior that occupies the same kind of scales that, um, that, that we actually occupy. They won't be very, very big. So what this says is, I, I often used to wonder as a child whether um, the, you know, the, the universe um, was just a uh, one molecule in God's brain, for example, and could the universe <laughs> think? You know, uh, this argument saying, no, I'm afraid not. It, it can't. You get too big, you average away all the random fluctuations, you destroy any meaningful um, interpretation of the density dynamics that inherits from, from, the, uh, um, from the fundamental lemma of variational calculus or Helmholtz decomposition. Uh, if you go too small, there's no solenoidal flow anyway, and you'd, you don't get this sort of, um, this moving through belief space, information geometry with large information lengths. Mm -hmm. Perhaps just to make this really intuitive, which um, I forgot to do before, Say I wanted to add sugar to my cup of coffee and I wanted to do it in the most efficient way. I could do one of two things. I could just put two teaspoons, full, uh, teaspoons of sugar into my mug of coffee and just wait for the random fluctuations to disperse the sugar throughout. I could wait for half an hour and it might ultimately become sweet. Or I can use solenoidal flow by stirring it. So the solenoidal flow is incredibly important in realizing the gradient flow, which for, from the perspective of the free energy principle is the belief updating. So yeah. a gradient flow on variational free energy is your belief updating. So the solenoidal flow is incredibly important for enabling or realizing the kind of belief updating that dis differentiates a, a virus or indeed a vegan from a stone. So I think the question, you know, what is the spatial sp space-time scale of other intelligent life um, would probably conform to that same principle and, and therefore must, must be the same order um, that, 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 that we inhabit. But there is another slightly more um, 
cheeky um, answer, which of course is for us to recognize it as life, we would have to infer that it's sufficiently like us to be living. So mm. we're talking about sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. inferring you're another person, you're, you're conscious and you're very right. mind conscious. Right. And so in a sense, you know, even if that argument about solenoid, the relative contribution of random fluctuations and solenoidal flow to um, um, uh, the, the flow that underwrites density dynamics uh, is wrong, um, then it still will be the case. You will never be able to recognize um, a godhead where you know one molecule in the godhead is 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 the, is the universe. So it, yeah, by definition, you only be able to recognize um, unless you have very powerful microscopes or telescopes. Uh, we're only going to be able to recognize life if it's yeah. sufficiently like us. So almost by definition, that's going to have the same the same sort of yeah. space time scale. Yeah, that's great. Well, Carl, we've been going for a little over two hours and um, just being sensitive to your time, I think we probably should uh, close close down the conversation. Um, but we do always end with uh, a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that, that you would like to say uh, here at the end? No, no. <laughs> we've, talked, we've talked about all my favorite things and a few of your favorite things clearly as well. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, this has been really fun. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. Remember, we're a nonprofit, so we rely on your help to keep making the shows you love. To support us, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help us, one that costs you nothing, is to recommend Big Biology to a friend, spread the word on social media, tell your teachers or professors about us. Growing our audience will ensure Big Biology episodes keep coming. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't, we'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, let us know that as well. On the next episode, we talked to Dr. Dan Gibbs about his book, Tattoo on My Brain. Dan was a practicing neurologist for years until he accidentally discovered he had Alzheimer's disease, a condition he'd spent years diagnosing and treating in his patients. Dan's book recounts the history and modern state of research in the field, but also his own experience with Alzheimer's and what he's doing to delay the onset of major symptoms as long as possible. When that work came out in the 90s, Alan Roses was the guy who, who presented the, the data showing that people with ApoE4 were more likely to have Alzheimer's disease and it was published in Science, and it got very little traction because it just didn't fit the, the paradigm at the time, which was all into the amyloid hypothesis. And, and how could a, a gene that was involved in lipoprotein have anything to do with it? And he was right. It just took a long time for it to, to settle in. And before we go, we want to tell you about a podcast you might like, I Know Dino. We are in the golden age for dinosaur discoveries. A new dinosaur is discovered and named nearly every week. And I Know Dino is the only podcast that covers every new dinosaur discovery. After six years of production, I Know Dino is the world's largest dinosaur podcast. 
I know Dino is made by adults for adults, but they keep it clean so kids can listen too. Not only do Sabrina and Garrett cover new discoveries, they also promote critical thinking when new claims are presented about dinosaurs. Previous topics have included how close are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to our current understanding. What did Spinosaurus use its sail for? Did T-Rex really have short, useless arms? Was Velociraptors small and feathered? Did Dilophosaurus spit venom? What can fossilized gut contents tell us about dinosaur diets? Check them out wherever you get your podcast. Again, the podcast is I Know Dino. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to Jordan Greer, Natasha Damright, Kyle Smith, and Blaine Doherty for helping produce the episode, and Katie Shimari for the cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.